Amen. I love when Daryl plays just, just Daryl on the piano on occasion because uh, because we get to see what an artist he is and the brilliance of his musicianship, you know. So, man, it's uh, it, now for those of us singing harmony, we're having to get creative around some of those chords. But it's good. It keeps us on our toes, Pastor Daryl. Thank you. Hey, good morning. So glad you're with us at South City Church. I got to tell you, we had an elder retreat um, a few days ago, a couple of days ago, and my, oh my, how blessed we are to have the elders that we have. I'm so grateful for those men, um, their accountability, their love, their forgiveness, their goodness, just all the things that they are. I'm so grateful for those men. And we had a wonderful time praying for you, weeping over you, uh, praying for God's best uh, for the future of our church and what he wants us to do and be. And I'm uh, just humbled to be able to serve here with you. I want to ask you a question as we get going this morning in this message in Ephesians. And it's this. Based on how good God has been to you. Think about it. Based on, on the goodness of God. Based on the blessings of God in your life. Is he worthy of your life? When you think about all that he's done. Right? Ephesians 1 talks about this, every spiritual blessing, every single one. Salvation by grace, we don't have to earn it, it's been given to us as a gift through Jesus. I mean, all these, just blessing after blessing is goodness. You woke up this morning with breath in your lungs and the ability to get here to be with family, right? Based on how good God is. Is he worthy of your obedience? Is he worthy of your faithfulness? Because honestly, I think that's part of the question that Paul is going to ask. It's part of the, the encouragement that Paul is going to give us today in the church and in our, in our lesson this morning from Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, turn over with me. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start with verse 1. Paul's given us a lot of information in the first three chapters. We, I told you a while back when we got going, the book is really broken into two different sections. The first three chapters really share a, the deep theological truths of, of who God is, how he loves us, and who we are as a result of who he is and how he loves us. And chapters four, five, and six are about how we live as a result. It's just kind of broken into these two parts. Well, we've just finished the first three chapters, the first section. And he, he showed us these things, every spiritual blessing, we're saved by grace. Uh, he's now, not only were we sinners, but now he's, he's changed our position. We're saints, seated with Christ in heavenly places, the Bible says. We've been brought together, even though we're different, from different places, look different, vote different, from different cultures and histories, we are now a new humanity, a new society together, believers in Jesus and now there's this harmony. There ought to be this beautiful unity in this new humanity. But it's not just created so that we can come together and pat each other on the back and go to a service on a Sunday. God has given us the church to be on mission and to have a purpose for our lives. What do you do for a living? That's not your purpose. That's what you do for a living. Now, some of you may connected what you do with your purpose, and that's awesome. If you can do that, that's great. I feel blessed in that way. 
But what we do is not necessarily the purpose of our lives. Sometimes God brings us an opportunity to work to put us next to the opportunity for our purpose. So some of you are working a job and you're going, I just... I don't know if I'm just supposed to be a teacher. I don't know if I'm supposed to be an accountant. I don't know how does this honor God. Well, I think it can, but more importantly, God can use you in those places for his glory and purpose. So as the church, we're a family and we have a mission and a purpose, and God has done and will do more than we could ever ask or think or imagine, right? God is so good. So it's out of this understanding, this this conversation of God's goodness and blessing that we come to chapter 4 this morning. Last week we talked about the fact that Paul prayed for our maturity in Christ as the church, right? That we would have the Spirit's quickening, Christ dwelling in our hearts, that we would have foundational uh, roots, that we would know the love of Christ, but it's so much more than knowledge that we would experience it, every facet of it, because it surpasses knowledge. And this week Paul's going to show us how to mature. In Christ. Look with me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Pray with me this morning, would you please? Father, God, we just, we humbly approach your throne together as a family today. And Lord, we acknowledge that we just need your help. We need your spirit to lead us to all truth, to give us uh, understanding of what you're meaning through Paul here in Ephesians 4. And God, I pray that by your spirit, somehow we would truly do what he prayed for, that we would comprehend how good you have been, that somehow we could understand and see it uh, not just with religious ears and let one thing go in one and out the other, but truly comprehend, truly digest how amazing you have been and, and are and will be, and let that information motivate our lives, motivate our obedience, motivate us to be the people of God. You're calling us to be. And Lord, your word starts with unity. So may we be a unified people. Teach us how to be, God. I pray now that you would increase in this place, that I would decrease and get out of your way, and that you would do something that only you can do through your word and your spirit, we pray, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So it's interesting, if you remember as we've looked through this, chapter 4 starts off almost identical to chapter 3. Did that look familiar to you? When we talked about Paul as a prisoner before, there's a little difference, a little nuance I want you to notice. Last time, chapter 3, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. 
We get over to chapter 4 and he says uh, that he was a prisoner for the Lord. Right? I think he's making a couple of different statements. When he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ, he's saying, this is my destiny. I trust the sovereign God who I serve. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Whatever he wants in my life, whether it be in prison or preaching, or go, I'm going to do whatever he calls me to, whatever the circumstances of my life, he's in them all because he's Lord of all, right? But over here in chapter 4, he makes a little change, and it's not I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm a prisoner for Christ. little nuance. In other words, this is how I'm serving. This is my joy to serve in this way. I want to do this. Almost as if Paul, before he asked us the question, is saying, after considering all that God has done for me, this is the least that I can do for him. I'm a prisoner for Christ, for the Lord. I, therefore, anytime Paul uses that word, therefore, there's a sense where we need to go back. Therefore what? They're based on what he's already spoken, right? But I don't think it's just the last few verses about God being able to do more than we imagine or think. I, I think it's, therefore, after all these three chapters, after all this goodness, after all these blessings of God, therefore, I am a prisoner for the Lord, he says, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." I think Paul was setting up when he was saying, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. It's almost saying, this is, this is what I'm doing. What are you doing? And then he says, listen, I urge you, which in the Greek means come alongside me and come with me. That's what it means. I urge you, come on with me. Let's go. I'm a prisoner. What are you doing? I urge you, come alongside me to walk. He's used that phrase before. Remember at the end of chapter 2, he said he's, that we're masterpieces created to walk in the works that he has prepared for us. What, what that means is that our lives be lived in such a way. That's what he's equating walk with. Walk with a worldview, with an understanding, with a family, with a biblical truth of who we are in Christ and what he has for our lives. Let's walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now this word worthy, we've sang it and I'm so grateful we did. Two or three of the songs this morning had the word worthy. It's an interesting word because in the Greek is the word axios. It's the same place we get the word axiom. And I started looking into this, I got a little nervous because it has to do somewhat with math. And everybody knows I love math. I don't. I'm being, I'm being facetious. I hate math. Um, I'm not a math fan. But evidently what axiom can mean in a mathematical setting, it has to do with weight. And so if you have an algebraic equation of some type, it might read something like A plus B equals B plus A, right? This side has to equal this side in order for it to be true. Does that make sense? Have you ever seen those judges scales, those big fancy brass or gold or whatever, and they have a big deal, and, and you put stuff on either side to try to make it even out? This is what worthy means. In other words, Paul, Paul is saying this. Paul's saying, God has been so good in these three chapters. He's given us so many things. He's been so kind. This side of his blessing and goodness is way down. And guess what? The other side's way up here. And we need to give our lives in such a way, not that our salvation depends upon this. We can't, we could never outweigh God's goodness and his blessings, his gifts. We can't. 
but we ought to live like we want to. That's living worthy. That's what that means. That's the word Paul uses here in the Greek. And so there, there, there ought to be a, an effort to balance out God's goodness. Lord, I want to do as much as I can on my side because of how good you've been on yours. And so this text this morning is about three things that I want us to look at. I think it's about our individual responsibility to be, to be unified. I think there's some corporate realities about unity. And then I think there's also some diversity in our uh, unique giftedness. And I love that God has gifted us each uniquely for the work he has for us in central Arkansas. So the, the thing that I think Paul is, is asking of, of us in this, this worthy piece really has to do with worship. You know, I, I try to explain worship sometimes as saying, our worship to God is our response. So sometimes we, we, we equate it with music or when we're singing and we see those words and we, we look at them. How do you respond to those words? How do you respond to that, that truth of who God is? Sometimes you have to respond like this. Sometimes you're responding on your face. How are you responding in your life? And it comes back to how good God has been. What is Paul urging us to do? To walk, to live, to honor Christ with our response of our lives. In essence, he's asking us to live like Jesus. Look at the first few realities that he gives us here. These responsibilities. Individual responsibilities for unity. read them again. Prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you've been called, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of the peace. Let's look at those. That sounds like Jesus to me. (laughs) Sounds like descriptors of who Jesus is. Number one, he wants us to walk in humility. C.S. Lewis said one time, it's not thinking less of yourself, It's thinking of yourself less. That's what humility is. Don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less. There's an understanding that every human being created in the image of God, right? That's that's the humanity piece. We're all created in his image. For those of us who know him and love him, walk in, we're his children. And we're all equal in that regard. And so we, we ought to walk in this humility of this God-given worth, I like the way John Stott puts it. He says, instead of maneuvering for the respect of others, which is pride. How often have I done that? Maneuvering for the respect of others, which is pride. We give them our respect by recognizing their intrinsic God-given worth, which is humility. I love the fact that Jesus has given us an incredible example of humility. Philippians 2. Have this mind, in verse 5 it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, do this, be this, have this attitude. He says, he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. 
when you look at that verse, what are the things that can apply to you in humility? Maybe you, maybe you think too highly of yourself and you shouldn't grasp onto those things. You need to let go. You need to maybe empty yourself of some of those realities and take on this mindset. Humble your heart and yourself and be more like Jesus. The next thing that's coupled with this when there's kind of these couplets, uh, and that is humility and gentleness together. This word, I love this word, and I've, I've used this example before, but gentleness is, some of your Bibles or translations may even say meekness. And meekness is not weakness, right? Meekness is strength under control. It's this image of a bodybuilder. <laughs> There's no question he's got strength. He's a bad dude holding a little baby. He's got all the strength in the world, but he doesn't need it. He's not going to use it. He's going to be kind and gentle and caring. I, I love horses. I love to ride horses. and one of the, I just love animals. And I love horses because of how huge they are, this huge animal that I get to pet and play with and, and, and ride. And this is a wonderful thing. But when you're standing next to a muscular horse and he just shakes the flies off and you just see his muscles go across his body. There's so much strength there, but he has this little bit in his mouth and hopefully he's under control. That's the picture of meekness. And we see that in Jesus had all the ability to call angels at any moment somebody spit in his face or insulted him. And yet he holds back that power. And he holds back that judgment. That is gentleness and meekness. In fact, he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart in Matthew 11. And he's saying, come to me and find rest because I'm gentle. What a beautiful body of Christ when we can be a people who offer each other rest. Gentleness. Care. Here's the next one. He says, be patient. Some of your Bibles may say long-suffering, and that's really the definition of patience. You know how sometimes you have a, a short fuse? The opposite of that is long-suffering. Don't have a short fuse. Have long-suffering. Be patient. Be patient. Wait. This is what love is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient. Love's willing to wait. Love's willing to be kind. And then I have to ask myself, every time I start feeling impatient with somebody, I have to look in the mirror and go, has God been patient with you? So every time I get this challenge of need to give patience, God has been so kind and patient with me, and that's what we need to offer one another. The next one he says, we should bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Putting up with each other, offering grace for each other. Now listen, I, I love my wife with all my heart. And I love my kids with all my heart. I love my family. I love you. Sometimes all of you get on my nerves. Right? We're human beings. Sometimes all of us get the cross and we go, oh, I just need some time away. And it's that time away that you go, oh, I can't wait to get back together. But we all need to bear with one another in love and give grace. Be kind. What, what does it mean to bear with one another in love? It's in the beginning to say, I know they're going to mess up. It's in the beginning going, they're not perfect human beings. They're broken. 
sinful, with baggage and issues. And so I expect some mistakes. And when they make a mistake, I'm going to give them grace. I'm going to bear with them. I'm not, I'm not going to hit the eject button because we're family. Family doesn't hit the eject button. Paul's, Paul's saying, listen, I'm in prison. Can you put up with each other a little bit? Right? I'm going to be, I'm chained to a guy with a big sword. I, I can't even go to the bathroom by myself. You think you can offer each other a little grace. Bear with one another in love. I, you know, I, when I think about the, the apostle Peter, <laughs> Peter was a hothead. I just know Peter in his sanctification had to all, he's always coming back going, hey, I'm sorry. Don't you know Peter was the guy coming back and saying, I, I messed that up. He had to. That was his attitude. I mean, he just, he would go and they go, that was dumb. Guys, I didn't mean to do that, right? Look what he writes in, his, in, in this letter. First Peter, something in, in, in every chapter here, 1 through 4, chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you uh, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that beautiful? That's who we are to be. As we bear with one another in love, offer grace, be humble, be gentle, be patient. And then lastly, Paul says, eager to maintain the spirit of the unity, or the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to notice that in the beginning, the spirit is the one who gives the unity. We don't create unity. The Spirit gives us unity. I, I've been in different places around the world, and it blows my mind that I can come up to a group of Christians who know Christ, and we can have incredible unity, whether it's Moscow or some place with people that are it's more militant and it's a little scary. People who know Jesus around the world are people who know Jesus. And there's a unifying re, uh, reality. Brother Jerry and, and Miss Sue, I know, have experienced this. The beauty of the body of Christ doesn't matter where you're from or what language you speak or the color of your skin. Those of us who know Christ are unified, and, and the Spirit gives that unity. So what does Paul say for us to do? Not to create it, but to maintain it. That's what he tells us to do. And we do that by being peacemakers, okay? We have to keep it. We maintain it by being peacemakers. He talks about this bond of peace. That bond is literally being family together. As Christ has saved us, he has made us adopted sons and daughters. Now we have a bond of family. We have a covenant here at South City. And our covenant reflects this very thing. It's, it's a physical representation of what this is talking about. We have a bond with one another. Not only spiritually that God has given us, but one that we have together gone, I want to be family to you. I want to submit myself to our elders. I want to submit myself to one another because that's what the Bible calls us to do and how to live. That's what I want to do. I want to be a peacemaker. It's our status as family. One, one commentator said this, 
that this uh, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace looks like this. Active repentance, reconciliation. And I added one more R, repeat. Repentance, reconciliation, repeat. Repentance, reconciliation, repeat. For those of you who are not married yet, write this down. Repentance, reconciliation, repeat. If you're going to have a life of love, intimacy, caring, beauty that God wants you to have in your marriage, in any relationship, in the church, learn to repent. Where you say, no, that's on me. I did that. You know what I honestly think? I think I'm getting better at that. As I get, I'm, I'm not young, I'm, I'm old, but I'm learning slowly how to repent quicker, to see it, to, to understand, to go, you know what, I shouldn't have done that. I, I do see your side now. I see what you're saying. I think I'm getting better at that. Learning to repent and then learning to reconcile faster and repeat. It's going to be something you do all the time. That's what this is doing. That's what being a peacemaker is. We are sinful, broken human beings, and we know we're going to fail each other. So we need to learn to begin to understand how to forgive, and yet how to speak truth in love, how to say I'm sorry, how to reconcile with one another. I think this is interesting. The Greek word for eager, eager to maintain, is uh, it's an emphatic word that basically means urgent. Like the, the connotation is, do this now. That kind of changes it, doesn't it? Instead of be eager, it's like, no, 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 this is urgent. With urgency, maintain the unity. See that? It's different than just be eager. I think the language has a, has a, a helper to us. Do this now. Make this right You're a peacekeeper. Don't let it sit. That's why the Lord says, don't let the sun go down on your anger within this 24-hour period. Right now, as soon as we can, make it right. That's what peacemakers do. But for whatever reason in our culture, we've come to the place where we, we don't have to do that or we don't do it. We just let it stew and then we slowly drift apart to never even engage each other again. We can walk away from a church family and never say a word. God, never let it be. We're family. May we be peacemakers. Paul gave us some words of truth about making peace. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Like, don't worry about anybody else. What can you do to make peace? They may never say they're sorry, but you can go and you can lay out your uh, apology. You can lay out your, your sadness over the situation. You can do everything that you can do until there's nothing else you can do. That's all God requires of you. As a peacemaker, do everything. If it's possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Romans 14, 19 says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. When you have a conflict, and guess what? You will have a conflict here at South City. You will have a conflict in your marriage and in every relationship that you have. When you have that, begin to pursue peace. Begin to pursue the unity that the Spirit has, always, has already given you. Just maintain it. 
What do we do to maintain it? Just keep it in, in the right place. Theologian by the name of Snodgrass says, we must renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. We must renounce harshness in order to walk in gentleness. We must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas in order to walk with patience. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to walk in forbearing love. We must renounce indifference and passivity in order to be eager or urgent to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The church is unified and God is glorified when we live with such Christ-like conduct. Paul says, I'm in prison. I urge you to come alongside me and to live this way with these qualities in your life. And then he gives us these God-given corporate realities. This This is almost like Paul saying, you can do it because God has done it. God is one. Look at this in verse four. It says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the hope, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. These are seven different unities, if you will, that Paul gives us of oneness. This is who God is. Can we do it? We can do it because he's done it. I, I love this. Some uh, theologians think that this, these three verses are a hymn of the early church. That when Paul put this in there, that the, that the Ephesians would have gone, oh, they would have maybe sang it. As soon as he began to read it, they began to sing this song that said these beautiful qualities. Notice also that all of these qualities of oneness fall under a Trinitarian God. Right? It's the fifth Trinitarian re- uh, reference in Ephesians. It's important for us to think about this uh, doctrinally. So there's one body, one church. Right, One body, which is the church. The spirit gives birth to the church. It says there's one spirit. So the spirit is represented here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And then he says, Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. I want to just make a comment about that. He uses this word, in different ways, four times, call, calling, called. This is for those of us who know Christ. We are in Christ. We've been called to live this way. And he says, this is our hope that belongs to our calling. What is our hope? Our hope is the gospel of Jesus. Crucified, resurrected, coming again. That is our hope, the gospel. This has to do with Christ the Son, second member of the Trinity. He is one Lord who is Jesus. We have one faith, which is in Jesus. We have one baptism, which is with Jesus. And then we see the Father represented when he says one God and Father of us all. Again, I think Paul is kind of stepping back a little bit to um, this piece of the fact that we're together as the church, Jews, Gentiles, we're one Father, one God. We're unified because of who our Father is and what he's made us positionally. So Paul makes it clear. There's not many gods. There's not many churches. There's not many spirits, many gospels. There's one. There's one. May there be one church 
Look at the next verse as we continue. Ephesians 4. Gets back into sort of more of an individual aspect here when he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So Paul's given us individual responsibilities, corporate realities, and now we're going to look at unique opportunities. Paul, back in chapter 3, you might remember when he said that he had been given a grace, a gift to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Remember that? So it's this, in essence, Paul's saying he's been given a grace gift. But here he says, each of us in Christ has been given a grace gift. His was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light the administration of the church. What is yours? What is your grace gift? What is God calling you to? Because he says each one of us has one, right? Each of our gifts are unique. This is what I love about this piece. Each of our, our gifts are unique it's based on maybe on our backgrounds, our experiences, our passions, how whatever gifting God has given us. It's kind of like a puzzle piece. My wife, every Christmas, she just wants to do a puzzle. I don't know what it is about Christmas and puzzles. So we get a, we get a big puzzle, might be a thousand piecer. And uh, I come in and I do two or three. And then I leave and I'm, for the next two weeks she finishes it. Um, but uh, anyway, I just grabbed a couple of pieces off of one of our puzzles. These are different. They don't look the same. They don't have the same function. This one receives this one. And together they go together. And yet they're completely unique and different. This is who you are. This is who I am. You have giftings that I don't have. You can help me in areas that I have need. And I have giftings that you don't have. And I can help you in, in areas that you have need. It's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. We need one another. And guess what? If we don't have your gift being used in the church, we don't have a complete picture of the body of Christ. If you're not here, if you're not serving with other people, if you're not connected in relationship, urging one another to walk in Christ and, and, and spurring one another on to, to love and good works, we don't have your gift represented. God has gifted you, and can I tell you, the church needs you and your gifting. And each of you has been given a grace gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is in the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We need your gift. Romans 12, 6 says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Are you using your gift? We need it, church. <laughs> we need your gifting. We need whatever it is that God has given you. There's somebody in this church that needs what you have. 
And I just believe somehow in God's amazing sovereignty, he has placed you here today. He has made you a partner of South City. He's rooted you in this family to use your gifting. What is that? Are you using it? Let's use it for his glory. Then there's kind of a confusing element to this text. Paul, Paul makes a comment about uh, it is written. <laughs> and what he's talking about is an allusion from, he's, he's alluding to uh, Psalm 68, where the story tells this beautiful uh, image of a, of a conquering king coming back from war, and he's leading a processional. And behind him are, are, are kings and rulers that are, that are chained. And he's defeated them, and, and they, they trail behind him, and he's got the gifts or the plunder of the war, and he's throwing out gifts from the enemy. He's throwing out gifts to different people. That's what Psalm 68 talks about. It talks about Christ reigning, coming back into Jerusalem as his throne. It talks about the fact that he gives gifts to men, and behind him trails demons and, and, and principalities and rulers that are chained and defeated for all time. But Paul's point in this is to say that God gives each and every believer in Jesus a gift. And next week we're going to talk about what some of those gifts are in the church. Talks about the fact that, that, that Jesus has descended to the earth. Of course, we're talking about from literally from heaven to earth. But it also goes lower than that. From holiness to humanity. From perfection to sinfulness. He has descended down to the lowest possible place. The Bible says that he became sin for us. He became a curse for us. Dies on a cross, is resurrected, and he ascends back to heaven. And he fills all in all. I love we read some of the verse from Philippians 2. I want to read the other portion of it. First part talks about his humility. The next part talks about his divinity, his victory. Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our God is victorious. Every single knee will bow. It's just this picture of this conquering king. And as he ascends back to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, this text says he fills all in all. Every need we have. Every plan he has for the church, he will equip it. He will equip the church and accomplish it, right? Because he is this conquering king. Friends, as I close, I just want to ask you this question. What is your response to God? Worship is not just what you do for three songs at church. Worship is how you live, according to Paul in Romans 12. Right? He says that this is our reasonable that being a living sacrifice, how we live every day, sacrificially offering our lives and our bodies and everything we are in a living way, that is our reasonable act of worship. 
What is your response to God? Now that we've looked at three chapters of blessings and salvation and and positional authority and, and love, how do we live now? How do we worship now as a result? And does it look like humility? Does it look like gentleness with one another? Does it look like patience? Does it look like bearing with one another in love? Does it look like being eager or urgent to keep this spirit, this unity of spirit, this this bond of peace, to be a peacemaker? You know, my heart is so, I guess burdened is the right word, I don't know. I get so saddened when I hear uh, about marriages or friendships or people who are frustrated or whatever the case may be. And it just, and they just say, well, there's no, it's just over. It's just what it is. Like, no, there's always hope in Jesus. If we know Jesus as our Savior, there is always hope. There are, there are marriages in this uh, church who've been divorced, and God brought hope, and they reconciled and got remarried. There's always hope. There's continual hope when we repent and reconcile and repeat, when we keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Do you see these God-giving doctrinal realities? Right? The fact that there is one body, one church, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. How does that inform your life for unity in our church, for unity in your family? for unity with people at work. This has been written for people in the church. So I want to give you the correct application here. This is about church life. May we be a people quick to own our own sin, mistakes. May we pursue peace with everything we can, if it's possible, to make peace. That's my prayer. That's my hope. That we be gentle humble, patient, grace-giving, and eager to keep the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit. What's your response today? What's your response in your marriage? Because, you know, it's not all just about your relationship. Marriage is about your relationship to God. Marriage is about your relationship, your surrender to God. Your covenant of marriage is to God and to your spouse. And after a so long uh, a brokenness, we just only see each other and a brokenness in each other. God is a healer. God does work in the impossible. He makes dead things come to life. And when we begin to own our mistakes and walk in these realities, these individual responsibilities, these God-given realities of who he is and our unique opportunities, God wants to give unity to his church. Pray with me. Father, God, I don't know how you want to use this word today, but I pray that you would remind us as believers in Jesus how desperately we need you. I I, I find it hard to be accusing of other people when I, I look in the mirror and all the accusations that could come back on me. I need grace. 
I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I am a sinner, and I have broken your law, and I have no hope apart from Jesus, my Lord. And as we look at each other, God, would you give us a Christ-like understanding of what it means to humble ourselves before one another, to be gentle with one another, to be patient, to be grace-giving and bearing with one another, to be urgent to make peace. God, would you please do that in our church? Not on our strength, not on our ability, but because you are one. We have one spirit, one God, one Lord, one church, one faith, one hope. You have called us to these one realities. May we live in it. May this be true of South City Church. May this be true of me. May this be true of us. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.